coming up. A remote mountain in Colombia, a screaming sex cult, and a tragic secret finally revealed. Baby, just scream abuse at each other. We put a premium on being stroppy and being aggressive in a good way. These are her own children. I hate you for getting boyfriends for more than I do. From the Daily Mail newsroom, I'm Amelia Hempel, and this is Scoop, a Mail Plus podcast series where we take a look back at some of the Mail's most remarkable investigations and hear from the journalists who got the scoop. I think people were shocked that British people would behave like that. Rebecca Hardy is a multi-award-winning feature writer who's travelled the world for some of history's most high-profile interviews. But back in the summer of 1994, she was the Daily Mail's foreign correspondent based on the West Coast in Los Angeles. She was planning a romantic dinner for her first wedding anniversary when the phone rang... It was her news desk editor. The foreign desk editor heard that there was a middle-aged nurse whose son had gone off to Colombia to join a New Age free love commune. And then the mother was flying out to join him, which was one of those, can you believe it, stories. So we thought we'd go to the commune before the mother arrived to see what was there and how her son felt about it. That doesn't sound like a very romantic way to spend your wedding anniversary. It didn't go down terribly well, put it that way, because it was just a bit of fun. And I think that on the foreign desk, they thought it was probably even more fun, the fact it was my wedding anniversary. So the romantic dinner was ditched. Within a few hours, Rebecca had booked her tickets, packed her suitcase and was on a flight to Bogota. Let's take a step back here for some context, as this was all happening back in 1994. The Atlantis People was a New Age commune which was set up by an Englishwoman called Jenny James back in the 1970s. She was the daughter of middle-class parents from Kent, and she felt restricted by the boundaries of the modern world and wanted to live in a different way. The cult started off as a group in London called People Not Psychiatry, and later established a commune based in Donegal, on the west coast of Ireland, where they became known as the Screamers. I don't know why. Why, why do you feel angry? I just hate I the way that you're talking about it. I just hate why? the way that you're f***ing treating me. We say that our society as it is today um, puts a premium on mediocrity and niceness and, you know, being sweet and being polite, whereas we put a premium on being stroppy and being aggressive, but not in a way that kind of... Aggressive in a good way. Aggressive like an animal's aggressive if it feels it, or like a kid is if it feels it. I just, I just want you to stay there for me to scream, stay here, and just scream abuse at each other. They believed in primal scream therapy, made popular in the 60s and 70s, where people that participated in it believed something had happened in their childhood which was absolutely dreadful and by being taken back by a therapist screaming using violent language etc they could expunge this pain from their body it was the commune itself that then practiced the free love and the idea that children should not succumb to any form of control or discipline they should just be free to be themselves their animal selves their human selves without control so how did the atlantis people end up in the colombian jungle what were they doing there they'd left ireland were driven out of ireland i think with bomb hoaxes and threats of violence etc because of the stories of abuse going on 
and the very anti-Catholic sentiment that there was being practised at the commune. At the time Rebecca visited the commune, there were only five adults living there and anywhere up to nine children. So what was the supposed attraction for these Brits who were following Rebecca who'd given up everything to move out there? I don't know. I think in Gareth's case, it was the promise of a different way of life and lots of sex, I think. And then the mother, I don't know. That's what we were going to go and find out. Why would you, at 50 years old, go and join your 23-year-old son on a commune? What was it like when you arrived in Bogota? This was going to be a long journey to get yourself all the way up into the jungle to the commune. It was busy, very busy, packed full of people, you know, very, very poor and noisy. Those are my memories. The foreign desk had arranged a translator who had picked up a Land Rover, so I met him and then we set off. I do remember I was wearing a rather nice watch and I had the window down and had my hand out of the window and the translator went ballistic. Don't, don't, you'll end up without an arm. Put your hand back in, which I did. Oh, gosh, speedily. They drove several hours into the countryside, heading for the Tolima district of Colombia and the remote mountainous area where the commune had set up. It was absolutely stunning. You know, through work, I'm privileged enough to travel a lot and it's probably one of the most beautiful places I've been to with sort of lush jungle and gorges cut into the rocks, rivers flowing down, waterfalls. And the roads were not, you know, they weren't like the M4, put it that way. So we were driving, I remember, at one stage down the mountain, and this group jumped out with machetes. I was driving, we were taking it in turns, the translator and I, and he said, put your foot down, keep driving, keep driving. So I had to drive straight at these people and explain that if I'd stopped, that would have been it. The machetes were for us. We would have been robbed and brutally murdered, probably. That sounds terrifying. What was going through your mind at this point? Did you not just consider turning back? We were partway through the mountain and it wasn't, it wasn't as if there were loads of the gangs lurking around. It was, you know, this lot had just sort of jumped out. You take it in your stead. I also think you're a bit shocked, so it takes a little while to compute exactly what's happened. As it was getting dark, Rebecca and her translator arrived at the small village a few miles away from the Atlantis farm. The commune could only be reached by a further drive and then a few hours walking on foot. So this was to be their base. So what was the village like? You were really isolated, no smartphones... How did you get in touch with the office to say you'd made it up the mountain? Well, we didn't that night. The lines in the village only worked internally. You couldn't use them for international calls. But there was a telephone sort of post guarded by soldiers where you could go in and place your call and come back, wait for an hour and a half for the connection to be made and be put through into the office. That didn't happen until the following day because of the time at which we'd arrived there. The village itself was really basic. There's two ways off that mountain, drugs or football, is my understanding. But the people were incredibly friendly. The hotel was more or less a stable block with a mattress on the floor and rats running everywhere. I don't like rats at all. I, I can do biders, I can do snakes, but I can't do rodents. I was virtually in tears. The translator explained what the problem was and the hotel, in inverted commas, owner kindly offered us beds in his own house. 
The next morning, we placed the call to let them know where we were and how the land lay. They knew, you know, on a map, the name of where we were going, and but you don't have the details because it's such a remote area. So it was filling the office in on those. And then it would be around mid-morning, I suppose. We then headed off through the jungle in the car and then on to where these people were staying. A ramshackle farm in the remote jungle of the Western Andes is maybe not where one would expect to find a New Age commune. Did they know that you were coming? How did you manage to find them? They didn't have a clue we were coming. Somebody from the village came with us or part of the way with us to show us in the Land Rover up into where we could park it and then to show us the path through the jungle to where the commune was. And what was it like? Absolutely beautiful. You know, the noise of the jungle, the beautiful colours, the air so clear, the, the sense of smells, everything is absolutely extraordinary. My understanding is the reason that the commune leader had been seduced by this part of Colombia was because of the sheer lush beauty and it was astonishing, absolutely astonishing. When we say there's a path through the jungle to where the commune was, that's incredibly generous. I mean, often to get through there, you would need a machete to hack down the undergrowth sort of as it grew up. It wasn't exactly a well-trod path. As we got towards where the buildings of the commune were, there were coffee fields and fields for vegetables, etc. They grew vines as well and made wine, which they would trade for rice and oil. Again, beautiful, beautiful, beautiful. And then you arrive and it was absolutely filthy. Just sort of disgusting, dirty quilts, dirty people. And what did they think when you turned up? Were they welcoming? I think they were absolutely delighted. A lot of these people are sort of attention seekers. They talked a lot. They talked a lot. They screamed a lot. And they had lots of sex from what I could make out. They liked the attention. They liked talking about themselves and they did so about the way they live their lives with absolutely no filter so your jaw was on the floor most of the time you were there to tell the truth. So they were quite open about the promiscuity between the members of the commune then. How did it work? They had to sleep with whoever picked them so if you joined the commune and someone picked you to sleep with them you couldn't say oh sorry don't really feel it for you. For example, Garrus, who'd been there for a little while, there was a woman that had joined a, a couple of days before we'd arrived called Anne. So Garrus had been sleeping with a woman called Annie. But when Anne came along, he decided he was going to sleep with her. So Annie was then sulking in the kitchen because she wanted to sleep with Garrus. It's this sort of thing that's going on as they played musical partners the whole time. And remember, at this stage... This is all we thought it was, this sort of bizarre commune where adults were behaving in this way and it was odd, weird, wouldn't want to be a part of it. But there was nothing really sinister. And then you got to see and experience this kind of group therapy that they were famous for. Yeah, they just talked about the anger. In some respects, it's very, very interesting. If you take a social filter off, we all live and behave with a bit of a filter, you know, we can't just start screaming at each other randomly and insulting each other randomly. It, it would just be too dreadful. So when that filter comes off to see how people behave and what they say, it was, it was sort of fascinating, really. Not much was known about this group at the time. There wasn't any social media or much internet around back in the 90s. Did the new members know what they were getting themselves in for? I think it was idealism. They were disillusioned with the world they were in. 
And this was about sort of free love, equality, away from materialism. Ecology was incredibly important. It was a very different way of life. But it was also a life without responsibility. So if somebody fell pregnant and they decided they wanted to leave, they could up and leave and just leave this child. When I was there, there were, I think it was nine children. Well, one of them, neither mother nor father were any longer there. It was utterly without responsibility. Besides the young man, Gareth, who you'd gone out there to meet, who else was there? I'm intrigued to know who these people were. Well, for instance, there was an ex-public schoolboy called Ed who joined after a suicide attempt. He was looking for a new way of life. He'd been to boarding school. He felt that that completely oppressed him sexually as a thinking, sentient human being in every sort of way and that he would find a, a freedom and a liberation within this cult. There was a guy called Finn who felt repressed by his Catholic upbringing. He too wanted to be free. It's how we use the word free and freedom, isn't it? Is it that it means you have no responsibility and you're not answerable to anyone? Or, you know, is there a, a social conscience almost that comes with this? My experience of this group was that there was no social conscience. There were just an, a lot of people that could have, all done with a jolly good bath, who sat there talking about their ideals and shouting at each other and being, quite frankly, really rude, noisy, loud, and boasting about who they'd slept with the night before and who they were going to sleep with. And tell me about the women too. Were they okay with this free love and this bed-hopping situation? It sounds quite complicated. Actually, I think it was really simple. I think it was like, I'll shag you tonight. Okay, fine, sort of thing you know, without any responsibility or anything. And that is one thing that the men and women did seem to be very equal. It was a woman that was the founder of the cult. I don't know if that was perhaps why, but it was not a paternalistic commune at all. So you mentioned Anne and Annie earlier. What were they like? It doesn't sound like they got on at all. I forget which one it was now, whether it was Anne or Annie, one of them. She'd gone there because she wanted to find freedom, escape her Catholic roots, etc. So she'd arrived and she got depressed and they didn't like her being depressed. So she felt she was being picked on and all she ever did was she just whined. Actually, a lot of them spent a lot of time whining. She was a pale, skinny, greasy-haired woman with this sort of whining, nasal voice that if she hadn't been on a commune where they were sort of obliged to have sex with each other on a regular basis... Well, put it this way, you, you, you'd, have, you'd have swiped left for most of them, but you'd definitely have swiped left for Annie. <laughs> but as Rebecca spoke to more of the Atlantis people, increasingly disturbing details started to emerge. It was the way that they began to speak about children. The adults lived completely separately from the children in a completely separate hut. And so at this stage, all we'd seen is the rather smelly adults lying around and no children. Then they began to talk about them. Anne, the one that Gareth was now bedding, she'd had two children, both of whom she rejected. And she said, can you imagine how terrible it is having a whiny kid up your skirt the whole time? Thomas was a horrible child. These are her own children. They give birth, they felt no responsibility to them at all. And they would pride themselves on, aren't we brilliant, superior human beings, because we are so honest 
about our feelings and that made the feelings okay. It was really, really sad and, and well, as we got to know the children, it, it became even more disturbing. Tell me how you were feeling at this stage as the much darker side of this story was starting to emerge. I'd been introduced to one child, I think, at that stage who had bare feet. And you just picked up this sort of, in this instance, the first time I saw him, just this sadness with him. And they asked if we'd like to stay the night. Would we like to have some thanks. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely not. And said we would be back the next morning. And this is where, as a journalist, you never know. You research and do everything that you can and you speak to whomever you can. But sometimes things are, if you like, luck as well. So we got back to the village and we were introduced to a woman. I think her name was Monica. And she came to see us because she wanted to tell us about the truth that the children that ran away that from there and were desperate because they were made to work in the fields. They were desperately unhappy. So suddenly this new picture was emerging. We knew Anne wasn't obviously completely maternal, saying Thomas was a horrible child, but we knew no more than that. And then suddenly that evening, as we spoke, or spoke through the translator over supper, this picture began to emerge of a cult, a commune, whatever you want to call it, that was by and large treating these children as slaves. No education, letting them sleep with whoever they chose to sleep with, under the age of 16. So a 16-year-old would sleep with a 12-year-old, this sort of thing. Suddenly this story that had started off as, can you imagine poor Gareth, his mum's following him out to his sex commune, began to take on more sinister connotations. So we went back the next day. The next morning, we'd gone back, armed with this knowledge. And you feel, as human beings, we all feel very different when we suspect children might be being abused. But we wanted to see, you know, with our own eyes, as it were. So we're still being very polite. And they're delighted to see us again. And they produce somebody or someone offers to do our horoscope, which is one of the ways in which they make money. They would go down to Bogota, do horoscopes for some of the wealthy Colombians and, you know, use that money to buy provisions. So I said, fine, I sit down. She does the horoscope. She said, it's a very, very auspicious that you're here. This is what I'm picking up. It's auspicious. It's, it's going to be incredibly auspicious for the commune. It, it's going to mark a, a period of change. I was thinking, yeah, if what I'm being told's going on is going on and that's published, it will be marking an absolute period of change for you disgusting people. Some of the Atlantis members set off on a tour of the farm and the fields to show Rebecca how the commune worked. And it was here that she was first able to speak with some of the children. We then started looking around and sure enough, the children were horribly abused. They, they were all barefoot. There were nine of them, I seem to remember, and they were in the fields begging not to be there. One of them asked me if I'd help him run away. Were the commune members okay with you speaking with the children, or were they trying to hide them away? They weren't trying to hide them away at all, and that was the astonishing thing. There was this 
honesty. There was this absolute lack of filter. So they were behaving like animals, really, with no moral responsibility, no responsibility full stop. But because they were speaking about it, because they weren't hiding it, because they were letting it all out, that seemed to make it okay. And what other things did the children say to you when you were able to speak with them? Did they confirm what Monica, the woman in the village, had told you about the abuse that was going on? Some of them loved their lives there. You know, it was the only life they knew. But remember, many of them, their parents weren't actually there. They'd sort of, mothers had left them there or fathers had left them there. And say, for example, there was, I'm going to call him Billy, a 16-year-old. The violence of language, the violence of conversation was regarded by the people that live within the commune as a positive thing. So he put to his mother in a letter, I chopped you up today with my machete and I'm going to do it every day. I've been talking lots with Ed about you and Finn. This was the boy's father who remained with the cult. And he's helped me to see that you and Finn are angry that my life is a load of because I don't like girls. I'm really angry and I came out here thinking that I had a mum in Ireland who was caring and loved me. Now I know that it's a load of because I know everyone has got anger in them. These were the sort of letters they were being encouraged to write. It's so awful. That line, I chopped you up today with my machete and I'm going to do it every day. It's violent and horrible. There was another child, a 12-year-old, who'd lived with the commune for much of his life and his mother was no longer there. And I found this quite sad. So he wrote, I hope you get beaten up. I would like to beat you up myself. Did you get my last letter? Was it very annoying? I hope it was. I will write again as soon as I feel annoying. P.S. Write back. I hope this letter is very annoying. Do you see the child that felt that the only way he'd get a response from his mother was if he annoyed her? Did you feel like you had the full story at this stage? Or did you feel that there were other things going on that were being hidden from you? I think we were getting the full story. We'd been told as well the night before about a girl, Laura, who was in hospital with a septic foot. She'd stood on a nail 10 days before that they tried to cure it with natural medicine and she was admitted to hospital with a temperature of 102. We stood that up that evening or the following morning before we went back out there. It was all very, very clear. And I'm not saying at all that all of the children wished to run away. They didn't. For a lot of them, as I've said, it was a a normal way of life. But take, for example, when I spoke to Laura, I said, you know, how are you? Are you missing the commune? She said, I miss my friends because there's no one to sleep with here. There I share a bed with Wacko. He touches me, not down below. It's Louise he has sex with. We just touch each other because it's fun. From memory, I think Louise was about 13. So this very, very dark picture is increasingly emerging. Some really dark and traumatic stories had emerged from this report, and you'd now been up the mountain quite a lot longer than planned. How were you able to report it all back? Because this had suddenly turned into a very different story, hadn't it? It had, and there were massive problems. It was a red alert mountain whereby the guerrillas were almost in control and the soldiers were patrolling and there were days that the telephone place you couldn't get through. I remember one day I'd queued for ages, ages and ages and ages to get a line. And I think after about two and a half, three hours, I finally got a line out. 
go through to foreign desk, some casual, so that's somebody that is just sort of shifting there, not a member of staff had picked the phone up, said, foreign desk. I said, oh, is mention the name of the foreign editor of the time there. No, he's in conference. Call back later and just put the phone down. That was it. (laughs) (laughs) But the deputy editor of the time, because by then they were beginning to get a bit concerned because we're probably pushing three or four days since they'd heard from us. And, you know, we were up a mountain and there weren't mobile phones and we didn't have a satellite phone with us. So, yeah, there, there was concern. We did get through and assure them we were all right. Do you think the cult members were starting to get suspicious of the angle you were going to be taking on this story? What to us feels so wrong and appalling, to them did not feel wrong and appalling at all. A life lived upside down was the way that they lived their lives and they were proud of living their life upside down. They were proud of the musical beds. They were proud of allowing the children to express their sexuality by sleeping with each other at whatever age. They were proud that the children worked in the fields. Oh, and the children that didn't wouldn't work. Obviously, some children, you know, are weaker than others and won't or refused to, were just dumped with the villagers. With the child that had wanted to escape, when we went to pick him up and they became aware, they were not happy. That was the only thing that disturbed them, that we were taking one of their children, one of their workers. The children would sometimes run away to the village, bearing in mind that they didn't have shoes. That was not easy, you know, several miles through a jungle and then a very long track that we'd driven on. When we arrived at the village, they were terrified, these couple of children who had run away there, that we were from the commune and we were going to be taking them back. This sounds like a real moral dilemma. You were there as a journalist to get the story out, but what was going on was illegal criminal behaviour. And of course, you want to try and help to get these poor children out who are stuck in the middle. I think you become invested in right and wrong. I don't think I'm the first journalist to feel that a child needs help and to extend help to that child. I mean, in any right-thinking mind to leave children. I forget how many miles away from the parents, the kids, where they all slept with each other was, but it was a considerable distance. They were not looked after as children at all. I think most journalists in my shoes, if asked by a child that was being treated in those circumstances as those children were being treated, would do exactly the same. So Rebecca and her translator headed back down the mountain to Bogota, leaving the cult and the children behind. On the way back, we got a puncture. And bearing in mind, I mentioned about the people jumping out with machetes on the way up, and this translator thought the best thing would be if he hid behind a bush and I waved down an army truck when it came past. I said, what if if one of the gorillas comes past first? You know, one of these sort of groups of people. He said, just run, (laughs) hide. Not very reassuring. Yeah. (laughs) Not very reassuring at all. Well, thankfully, an army patrol did stop and they kindly helped us change the tyre and then he came back out from behind his bush. So you got back to Bogota and filed the final piece. You'd experienced a lot of things you hadn't expected when you set out to report on the Atlantis people. Did writing it all down change how you felt about what you'd seen and heard? I think it always does when you write it. I think in a funny way, as a journalist, you're more a vessel to pass something on to the reader and it's actually when you're writing it that you 
compute a bit more of what's actually going on. You know, the shade and the dark and the light and all of that sort of thing, rather than just gathering. The newspaper's splash, Free Love, Deep in the Jungle, Middle Class Britons and the Lost Children of Atlantis, went to press on the 28th of June 1994. That year, a collection of Rebecca's investigations, including the Atlantis piece, was shortlisted for Foreign Correspondent of the Year Award. So what happened to the Atlantis cult, Rebecca? Did your piece manage to help the children? Well, a while later, the cult was evicted from the mountain. The cult members say they fell out with revolutionary forces. Others say that it was the Colombian government that expelled them from the mountains because of those practices. And what kind of response did you get from the British public reading this piece about what was going on all the way out in the Colombian jungle? I think people were shocked. I think people were shocked that British people would behave like that. You know, it shocked the Colombians and it it certainly shocked our readers from the letters we received then. People were appalled. So this all happened 26 years ago. What's the part that sticks with you the most, looking back on it now? I think the two overriding memories, if you like, the two things that overridingly stick are the sheer darkness of mankind, the way that those people behaved, the the violence of the language, the way they behaved to those children was, it was worse than bestial. Groups of animals behave better with each other than these people were behaving with each other. So that dark side of human nature, but then the light and beauty of this planet. I mean, where they were was absolutely astonishing. It's, it's almost impossible to put into words the sheer beauty, the, the vastness and the lushness of that mountain. That's it from us this week on Scoop with me, Amelia Hempel. You can read more of Rebecca Hardy's work in the Daily Mail. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and you can rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. We'll be back again soon, bringing you the stories behind some of the Mail's biggest investigations. Listener.